What do you post to the forum? I can resend it. Hi, it's Kurt there. Kurt is here now. Okay, uh, we are recording now. Good morning, uh, everyone. I mean, in California, and I guess afternoon for uh, the East Coast uh, folks. Uh, this is our Ontolog invited speaker presentation session, and today we have Conrad Bach from the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology with us. It's Thursday. Uh, 2005, January 27th, and I welcome Conrad. He's going to speak to us uh, on the subject PSL and flow models. Uh, Conrad is a computer scientist at NIST, specializing in PSL, which is the process specification language, uh, the UML language, and language semantics. And among other responsibilities, he has been developing process ontologies based on PSL. He has been the working group, the work group leader for UML2 activities and actions, and one of the developers of the UML repository model at OMG. He has also been this representative on HL7 clinical decision support TC. Uh, that's why it's so relevant to have Conrad speak to us in the middle of our, our exercise trying to bridge between data modelers, I mean, like, I mean, people in the EBXML camp uh, and the ontologists, as well as trying to put ontology, the ontological engineering approach uh, into the NHIN uh, initiative. Uh, Conrad received his Master of Science in Computer Science from Stanford University. And without much ado, uh, Conrad, all yours. Okay. So hi, everybody. Um, if you have any questions during the presentation, just go ahead and ask. Easier than trying to remember them later. Um, this presentation is kind of long, so I'm actually going to skip the first set of slides because they're mostly about well, they're actually more formative, uh, still formulating uh, how to describe the basic difference between uh, the PSL and FOL languages as compared to the other class-based ones like UML and OWL. So we can come back to it. Uh, it's probably better just to explain how PSL works, and then we can come back to that general discussion if there's time. So I was going to skip forward to slide uh, 14. Um, and just dive into describing the basic PSL concepts. And then I think it'll become obvious how, it, uh, how it's different from other process models, and, and we can discuss that. Um, the, the, uh, one of the basic differences between PSL and, and common process modeling techniques is that it, uh, it incorporates the notion of the execution of a process uh, into uh, the ontology. So uh, if you say you have a, a, an activity or process called painting, there's a notion in PSL for occurrence, which means that, 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 that a particular occurrence of painting was executed at a certain time in a certain place and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, this is, say, compared to UML and other process models, which they give you a flow chart, they give you a set of activities 
to, to describe the steps that are taken in general, but uh, you can't you, you you generally can't refer to a specific instance of an execution um, in those models. Conrad, this is Bill McCarthy. Um, mm -hmm. Am I just to be very naive about this. So um, you're saying the other language is sort of like looking at the top of a relation in a relational database without the rows, and you're going to put the rows into. Yeah, it's like that. Okay. Okay. And um, it, uh, it it defines everything's defined as constraints on what uh, on these occurrences rather than a description generally like a flowchart that of course could be executed anytime. Okay. So the next slide, uh, 15. Um, this shows uh, yeah, the just, I'm actually not going to show all the first order logic axioms that describe it, but I, I thought I'd show just a little bit of it to give you an idea um, of how it's defined. Um, because um, it's not so important that PSL is defined in KIF and uh, first order logic that I mean that's a great benefit to it but uh, you could also represent the concepts uh, some of them anyway in UML uh, and the, the 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 benefit of PSL really comes at it that it's allowing you to place constraint on actual occurrences and executions of the activities but I thought I'd show you this uh, just to get an idea of what those axioms look like um, so for example um, this is basically what you see in the first order logic here is basically a translation of of the UML. It just says that uh, if you have uh, the occurrence of relation, things in blue are basically all the PSL relations. Things in red are all the standard FOL connectors, and then the black are the variables that, that bind everything together. So the first one just says that uh, if you have a relationship between the occurrence and activity, or two entities in the occurrence relation, the A is the activity and the, the, uh, the question mark awk is the occurrence. And uh, these statements just basically translate what you see there in the, in the UML diagram. So let's go to slide uh, 16. Um, so the next thing is layered on um, in the PSL core is to say, well, uh, these executions that are happening, actually happening in the world, they happen in a certain order, and so it gives a successor relation. Um, and these uh, describe uh, activities that are happening anywhere. It's not, uh, they're not meant to be uh, specific to, uh, you know, a particular factory or anything like that. They, the model basically covers anything that's happening that you're concerned about. And so, uh, the model forms a, a tree. Uh, let's, let's look at the next slide, 17. So uh, each of the, what this uh, little diagram is meant to uh, represent on slide 17, each of the circles is an occurrence. The arrows are the successor relation. And the uh, activity that each of the circles is an occurrence of is labeled next to some of them. So what you get is. Um, a tree of all the possible sequences of things that could happen. Um, and the actual thing that happens, of course, will be one path through this tree. And this structure, of course, is infinitely large. There's an infinite number of activities. There's probably an infinite number of ways that things uh, could happen. Um, but this is meant to describe 
um, absolutely everything, not everything that could happen, but uh, how do I put it? It's everything that's theoretically, without any domain knowledge, all the combinations and all the possible things that could happen. What, you're, what you do with PSL is actually constrain this huge tree down to the things that are physically possible and constrain it down to the things that you want to happen and that sort of thing. So it's, it's sort of a huge tabula rasa that you just, uh, that, that lets you refer to any sequence of things that can happen and, and just say for, for your application whether you want them to happen or whether they're possible. So it's not stored anywhere because, of course, it's infinitely large. It's, it's just a, a reference model on which you write your con the constraints that are your process specification. And this is pretty much the central aspect of PSL and what makes it different from the other process languages. So when you say that, it's that you write constraints to a model, are, are you saying that then this occurrence tree is implicit in, in what the model implies or, or, or entails? Right. It's essentially defined by those axioms, uh, the initial PSL core axioms just allow this uh, tree. Um, you, of course, don't have to uh, store all of it anywhere. It's just implied by the relations, by the axioms. Conrad, I notice on um, slide 17 that some of the uh, nodes are not labeled. Is that just because you couldn't, you didn't want to fit them all in there? Yeah. Like, uh, okay, so just didn't fit them. Okay, okay, okay. So I would assume that those would have the little names right beside them if this were uh, totally right. specified. Okay. okay right. Each, each occurrence is required to be an occurrence of exactly one activity. Okay. Got it. Got it. Thank you. So this is the center of it. I'm just going to wait to see if anybody has more questions. Because if, if, this, if this is fuzzy, actually, it makes the rest of PSL almost impossible to understand, because it, it, this is what makes it different from other process modeling techniques. Okay. Now, when you say you can say what you should, what should happen, that, that's what the constraints do. Is that correct? Right. OK. So in other words, you just cut off parts of the tree by saying, this right. is the way we're supposed to go right here. Okay. Right, and that's what PSL uh, claims is the semantics of all process models, programming languages. Okay. They're really just trying to, I mean, in the end, the, the purpose of process models is to say what you want to happen when they actually run. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, most process models, they give you a little picture on a flowchart, or if, even if it's a piece of software, that's giving you sort of a template of what's going to happen at runtime. There's no actual, there's there's no nothing concretely representing what's happening at runtime. And uh, what this does is give you a structure that, that concretely says that, and then you can express the meaning of programming languages and, and process models in terms of constraints on this structure. So let's see, uh, why don't we go on and see how these constraints work on slides 18. Um, so what, uh, what it allows you to do then is um, say we had a constraint that uh, drying is, a, is an activity that should immediately follow painting, you know, always. So you can say that uh, in first order logic using the, the PSL uh, relations. And then what that does is uh, is basically carve out pieces of the occurrence tree that are you know legal from your point of view uh, versus ones that aren't. So this one 
drawing is not happening immediately after painting, so that's not satisfying the constraint, whereas this part is. Going on to slide 19, just, this just shows what that constraint would look like uh, if you wrote it out. Uh, it's basically saying whenever you have an occurrence of paint that's legal, and where legal is actually up to the model or, or the, uh, the person, the domain expert to define what's legal, as long as you have a legal occurrence of paint, then uh, there is a legal occurrence, the successor of paint, uh, of paint is dry, and that's legal. And there's no other successors other than paint that are legal. This is what this, this sort of what some people might call closure. It just says uh, nothing else is legal. And that in the in the, in the, um, in the ontology um, um, best practices, this idea about immediately follows versus um, eventually follows or um, is is an eventual. Uh, successor of, mm -hmm. is uh, sometimes modeled with uh, two relations. One that is um, the primitive idea about, you know, say, immediately successor, mm -hmm. and then a, a transitive um, uh, a, a super class or, 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 or property that generalizes the first one that is now transitive. And so, in a, for example, a tool like, you know, an OWL tool, for example, um, what you were describing might have been said by um, a, a, a primitive constraint about paint and, and dry, mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure if it would have been necessary in that context to have some kind of a closure constraint like the for all you have described here. Um, well, if you were to essentially take the PSL axioms and represent them in OWL, um, and it turns out actually you can't quite do that. Uh, yeah, the the, the, axiom, the parts of KIF that the PSL axioms use is wider than OWL. Um, uh, so yeah, we can take up that translation to OWL. Um, yeah, why don't we why don't we take up that as a topic of discussion? So anyway, this this uh, this constraint here would carve out. If we go back to 18, it would. Um, it would disallow the this region on the left and allow the the, the region on the right. So um, so when you come to a uh, how you specify uh, how you say use PSL to express semantics, um, this is a UML diagram, and this is what people typically consider a you know a, a process model or, or a process specification. It doesn't have the occurrences in it. It's sort of a template, uh, as it were. It, 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 and uh, from the PSL point of view, the claim is that, well, the, the, the semantics or the true meaning of this is, is what it is expected to, uh, what, what, the, what the modeler, when they drew this, what did they expect it to imply in terms of runtime? And those are the constraints on the occurrences. We are on slide 20. Oh, I'm sorry, slide 20. Um, and um, this one you'll notice. Uh, it defines this larger process called change color with these uh, two uh, processes underneath it. Um, and uh, that is, this allows paint and dry in, in normal process modeling. You can use paint and dry in other 
other diagrams for other processes, but in this particular one, this is the order that's specified. So how would you do this in PSL? Um, these are called complex processes, ones where uh, there's, a, there's a series of steps you want to identify with a given name. So what, we, what we're trying to say when we translate, when we specify the semantics of that diagram on slide 20, on slide 21, um, we're really trying to say that paint happens immediately after dry when you're executing the change color process. And it's not that that uh, constraint uh, implies anything about painting and drying if you're executing other processes. So that would be the goal you know, in, in the translation. And so um, this is a little UML diagram of the PSL axioms um, uh, that introduce the notion of the complex occurrence. Slide 22. I'm sorry, slide 22. Uh, that introduce the notions of the complex occurrence, which has which has permanent occurrences under them, and, and complex activities. And you'll notice that the successor relation only applies to the primitive occurrences, and that's because uh, that's following the general PSL principle that it that the successor relation is providing the uh, the grounded or the most concrete basis on which you're describing all these constraints. So you have, you could derive successor relations among complex occurrences, but uh, the, 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 the one that PSL defines is it's only between primitives. So let's see how we use this. Um, this relates to uh, a question that was asked about um, being immediately after versus sometime after. And what uh, PSL defines these relations, next subock and min precedes, which uh, are not the most pretty names, but what they essentially mean is, uh, on slide, I'm sorry, on slide 23, um, what these two relations mean is to say that this primitive occurrence, uh, that there's a relation between the primitive occurrences and a complex one, where you can say it's immediately after, versus min precedes, which means it's, it's sometime after. Can I request this person who just logged in to, to mute his phone because we are hearing some echo? So you see, uh, next subak is actually, uh, as I think Nicholas was saying, that, uh, the is, is actually specialization of mins proceeds. So something is uh, immediately after. If it's sometime after with nothing in between, that's basically what this, nothing, nothing exists in between. This, uh, this is an example of how PSL is defined. Uh, this is like a typical axiom that PSL would define. Can I can I ask you a question? This is Bill McCarthy again. Sure. The, um, did you ever, uh, when you were thinking about doing this, did you ever consider a time parameter like zero xxx up? Or in, in, obviously, that didn't work. And do you remember why? Uh, time is actually uh, modeled also in PSL. I don't cover that in this presentation, but the occurrences um, are all, all, all the primitive occurrences. Actually, every occurrence, even the complex ones, allow you to say when they begin and when they end. Okay. And it has a very simple notion of time simply being an ordered set of time points. Okay. Okay. And you can state, of course, all the constraints that you write on your process can, of course, use that and say that you want this occurrence to happen no more than 10 seconds after that occurrence and things like that. Okay. 
Uh, this is Kurt Conrad. I'd like to jump in for a second. Sure, go ahead. We've still got somebody with an unmuted speaker phone running, so we're getting an echo. Everyone could check that, please. That sounds better. So going to slide uh, 24, um, this is basically the constraint uh, implied by that the diagram that we saw, the UML diagram. Uh, it's defining the occurrences that happen inside each complex occurrence of change color. So this says uh, anytime you have an occurrence of change color, there's going to exist these other occurrences of so paint and dry that are subactivity occurrences of those, and that um, dry uh, happens immediately after painting I under change color. And um, so I don't have a slide on, but what I the thing to note the thing to note is that that constraint the next subock is just for the occurrences under change color. So. There could be actually other things happening between paint and drawing, but they're not part of change color. It could be that you do the painting, and then uh, some other things happen that have nothing to do with change color, and then the drawing happens. So this is uh, basically represents what common process models do, which is to uh, sort of bracket what they're looking at and say, I'm, I'm just talking about the constraints uh, under this named complex activity. So, so I, I would like to you to clarify what you, the comment you made about uh, there could be other things between painting and drying. Are you okay. saying that if we're talking about um, change color as the as the process that say um, a painter performs, mm -hmm. and, and that some other person does other things, that it allows the interleaving of the activities that the painter performs, like painting and drying, mm -hmm. with the activities that somebody, some other person uh, is performing. Right. So this axiom allows that. That's what you're saying. Right. Okay. And that's uh, in part needed because each of the branches of the, of the occurrence tree is uh, the things that happen, ha what actually happens is a single branch along that tree. So often, of course, things happen in parallel or they're interleaved and you don't, just because there is one process happening doesn't mean other processes can't be happening. Okay. So if we go to slide 25, um, this is an example of things that are a little bit harder to say in TSL, but uh, at least you're saying them precisely. Um, Say you had in UML this this uh, this diagram means that these three activities can happen in any order, possibly parallel, possibly not. Um, but of course, it's only a diagram. You can't actually tell what it means. You have to go to a, a document and you read some English, and there's not really any uh, concrete uh, computer sensible way to determine what the semantics of this is. But in UML, if you were to write it out, you would see six non-overlapping orderings, six partially overlapping orderings, one completely overlapping ordering. And you would, you would write a PSL. The PSL specification of this would be a large disjunction um, over all the possible uh, ways that this could be combined. Is, is there a quick Bill McCarthy, is there a quick explanation why those numbers are six, six, and one? 
let's see, uh, I hope I counted them right. Um, if they're non-overlapping, which means that none of those happen at the same time, right? Uh, it's the factorial 3 times 2 times 1, okay. isn't it? Yep. And then partially overlapping would be all the ways that um, they're not all happening at exactly the same time, but are Overlapping there is versus right. there is a specific way of of overlap. Like say if I say I I, um, I just know that between the the two black dots um, the drying the cleanup and the put away have to be done versus um, I allow or say I want the partial overlap but I don't know in which way they're going to be partially overlapping. I mean c can you say right. such things? Yeah, um, basically. When you when you carve out a part of the tree, say that's legal for, um, I guess this this process here doesn't have a name. Uh, let's uh, maybe we can make this a total drying process. When you carve out the part of the tree that's legal for this diagram, it can actually include multiple branches of the occurrence tree. It doesn't need to be a single deterministic line. So if I say, well, the process is actually carves out this region that is has a tree in it, what you're saying is that it's non-deterministic, that uh, these series of things may happen or those series of things may happen. Uh, so you're allowed to be as general or as specific about the exact ordering in PSL because you're pretty much allowed to write any constraint you want on the occurrence tree. Peter Yim here. A couple of questions. One, I mean, the, the, the combinatorics is going to really uh, make this, whether it's uh, the, the viability of the entire model I mean, is probably the most crucial factor. And so far, are you alluding to the fact that uh, constraints are actually uh, sort of a de design time activity so that, I mean, you can actually harness and, and, and constrain the model to something that, that's viable to not uh, allow it to, to sort of be totally blow up on its own, on itself. Um, maybe I didn't catch what you meant by viable. You mean... Um, it's, it's possible to put even put a model together. Because, I mean, something as simple as this already has that much combinatorics. And if you look at some real-life process, I mean, making of a Boeing airplane, I mean, right. they're trying to put the whole thing into a, a, a PSL model. Right. It seems to be sort of almost close to infinite. Well, there are actually some, um, if the flow model paper goes into that and actually has, shows an example of a technique which you, if you can find a mathematical property of the, uh, the tree that forms a pattern, which it, it often does, um, you can uh, identify that pattern rather than just enumerate, sort of the brute force way of enumerating all the possible uh, branches. Um, and also PSL has some predefined relations that make defining those kinds of constraints easier. Um, 
but there's a limitation on how simple it can be because it's basically disambiguating the diagram. So, for example, this diagram actually in UML, uh, it conforms both to UML and state machine notation, but has different semantics in each. So uh, what PSL is for is saying, well, exactly what did you mean when, if it's a state machine, what exactly are the constraints on it versus if it were an activity model? And uh, there's the, uh, in general, I found the extra effort in the amount of time actually that's lost usually in standards committees arguing about uh, what is meant by a, a model or a diagram, I found actually it's quite a bit larger than it would take to learn um, PSL or the underlying logical formalisms that would disambiguate it. It's usually, well, people don't want to put that effort up front. But in the long run, it, well, not even really the long run, and even it, I've seen arguments, for example, where metamodels and diagrams go on for years, and confusion is not found until implementation. So, I mean, one of the goals of, of, of this work really is to help uh, facilitate and, and uh, speed up the uh, standards process by uh, giving people a way to really say what they mean rather than, say, write it in text or, or that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, the other question, since you mentioned deterministic, I mean, how, how do you deal with things when they're uh, probabilistic? When they're probabilistic, um, I don't think we that's been really uh, approached. Um, but you can uh, because you are. I wonder if you can do this. You can since the con the, the constraints you write are leaving uh, are are essentially identifying all these parts of the occurrence tree that are legal from your point of view. You might be able to say something about. Uh, uh, subclasses of those, you know, how many of the subclasses of those there are. So, say, 60% of the time the tree looks like this, and the other 40% of the, the legal trees look like that. Um, I don't think anyone's tried that yet. Um, something we could ask Michael about. Uh, we've, we've talked about it, but I, I can't remember what the conclusion was. Thank you. Um, okay, let's see. I'm just taking a note. So going on to the next slide. Um, so the benefits uh, when you're writing in PSL uh, is, well, this self-documenting has to do with the earlier slides. Uh, that when you read PSL, it's not like a process model diagram or programming language where you have to go to some other piece of documentation to see what its runtime effect is. PSL, because it's written against the runtime executions, the occurrence tree, it, it pretty much says what it means. So it's self-documenting, even if sometimes it's harder to read, the, the language actually does, the, the meaning is written right on the face of it. And it's based on a small set of highly reusable concepts, so once you have an engine or that can make inferences on with those sets of concepts, you can say pretty much whatever you want. And of course, like we were saying, you, you, you improve the whole standards process and interoperability by reducing the ambiguity of the diagrams and the programming languages. Um, 
the disadvantages are that it is sometimes difficult to add concepts, usually because you have to go to the effort to uh, say exactly what you're allowing and what you're not allowing. So it's sort of the, the downside of having to be precise is that, well, you, you really have to think through all the cases. And of course, it can, it can, it's more verbose. Um, but an additional benefit, particularly in process modeling, is it lets, because it lets you state any constraint on the occurrence tree, you're, you have a very flexible arrangement. Um, so you can say, unlike in most process models, you can actually sort of make a partial program. You can say the very loose constraint on the occurrence tree. Or you can state very tight ones, and you can combine them easily. So you don't need to write out entire programs and, and get them all straight. You can just say the little bit about the process that you want to make sure is the way you want it. And then that can be combined with the constraints defined with other people's. And then the theorem provers can tell you, of course, whether you, you can ever have any branch of the occurrence tree that satisfies all those. Conrad, this is Bill McCarthy again. The actual term then classification rules means, is that a? Is that a oh, I think uh, I'm sort of see if I'm going, let's see what the next slide is, actually I forgot. The, the classification, um, this, uh, actually this is what the example that I'll get to in, in the next couple okay. of slides. Okay, okay, thank you. And what I meant by rules is often business rules, which are, uh, uh, most people take separate from process models, but actually are uh, constraints on what happens in the business. Um, like, you know, a, a customer has to be a gold customer in, the, in order to get a certain benefit. That's actually a constraint on what processes are actually allowed to happen in the business. Okay. So you, can't, you basically have a unified uh, representation in PSL for your average process model as well as the so-called business rules. So let me go to the next. Uh, this was sort of an internal slide about how to advertise. Uh, basically, this was this is just briefly about uh, the L in PSL is very confusing for people because they think they're going to get another language for describing process. In fact, what they're getting is a way of defining the semantics of what's normally called a process language, or, or the, what's, what's the runtime effect of, of a process language. What does L O R R mean? Oh, uh, this actually refers to the earlier slides. We can go back to that. Okay. Um, okay. More general discussion. Uh, this was, we should skip over this. These are sort of how do we, how do we make PSL, you know, easier for people to, to deal with and what can you do with it. Um, let me move on to 29, which is the example of something you can't do in a normal process language uh, and, and shows this capability of partial programming. Um, some of you may have heard of the MIT Process Handbook Project. Uh, they have a way of classifying processes, and it's pretty, uh, it's pretty common in general for, uh, seems to be something y you find process models wanting to do. They, they want to say that, well, this process is a kind of a more general one. So um, this is an example taken from the, the process handbook that shows uh, four particular kinds of food service processes, and you want to generalize them uh, or make some specializations of this general food service process. And uh, the there, there's more than one way to, to classify processes in PSL. It, we're still looking at which, you know, what the benefits are of each. 
This is the one that's in the flow modeling paper. And it basically says um, that if you have any occurrence, uh, that is any primitive occurrence under any of these complex ones, the fast food restaurant, that it's also going to be a, an occurrence of a more uh, a general. Well, it, that is, um, let me see if I got this right. Any occurrence of fast food service, um, right? I think there's an error here. But what it's meant to say is that um, that the occurrences that uh, are under uh, food service, uh, fast food service, are are also classifiable under uh, food service. And this is because um, the complex activities in PSL are not required to be well nested the way they are in in normal process models and programming languages. Normally. If something happens at runtime, it happened because of a specific process which was nested under a larger process, a single other larger process, and that sort of thing. Whereas in PSL, because processes essentially are constraints on the occurrence tree, you can have a particular occurrence in the occurrence tree can satisfy any number of constraints. So it essentially can be viewed as participating in any number of processes at the same time. So let's go on and look at what this, uh, how we would uh, use this. Um, on slide 30, you see uh, this again, taken from the, the, the process handbook, that there's these four processes that are happening. They have some similarities and some differences. Uh, in fast food service, you uh, it, the food is prepared before it's ordered. In restaurant services, it, it's reversed. Uh, the buffet is shares that characteristic with fast food services, uh, but uh, you pay uh, after while well, you serve, that is, serve yourself. Whereas the fast food, you pay after the order before you get the food. And church, church suppers are different yet again. So how would we abstract what's in common between these processes into this general category? So we want to say the food service has these steps and with these constraints um, that ordering, preparing, and serving always happen to happen, have to happen before you eat. And serving always happens after the preparation and ordering. And you can pay any time. So what we're really doing here is we're partially specifying a process uh, here that is uh, on which there's more constraints layered on by fast food service and restaurant service and that sort of thing. So if we were to try to do this, for example, in UML, uh, this is about the best you could do. Uh, it's saying, it's trying to say that pay is, doesn't, doesn't matter when you pay here, uh, uh, that this could happen anytime. But uh, this would allow that preparing and ordering are concurrent. You're trying to say that they happen in any order, but all the best you could do in UML is say that they're possibly concurrent, which is not what you mean. And it's the same way with paying. Um, you don't mean that it's necessarily concurrent, could be concurrent with all of these. 
Whereas in, in PSL, where we take advantage of these relations that distinguish between immediately after and sometime after, this one allows us to uh, state partial constraints on the, uh, on the process. So in this one, we're saying, well, OK, we have an occurrence of fast food, of food service. And that means there exists these occurrences of preparing and eating. And in particular, here's just one aspect we're trying to isolate here, that uh, preparing has to happen sometime before eating. That doesn't say exactly before, just sometime before. So let's go to slide 34. This is, this is an example of what you might do, say, if you were to enhance the UML notation. You would have to add specialized arrows, let's say, sometime before. And this is typical of what happens in process models. You find some application that doesn't fit, and you make a new notation. And the difficulty with that, although it's useful in some ways for visualization, the difficulty is, well, now we have yet another entity in our language. We have to build the interpreters for it. We have to teach on it, and that sort of thing. Whereas, because PSL gives you the occurrence tree and lets you state the constraints that you want, you really don't need to keep introducing these new language elements. So let's go to slide 35. Um, but however, at the same time, you, you could say that um, UML is a way of you know, diagrammatically representing the different kinds of relations um, that you're using in, to express, in the end, PSL constraints. Right. But yeah. with the caveat that um, it, 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 we can only describe so many things diagrammatically and mm -hmm. much more um, in, in the textual form. Well, even if you were to take UML and say make a textual format, um, which is possible, some people have it, um, you would still need to continue to add special elements. Like if this were in a textual form, you still need a special way of saying uh, that serving is sometime before eating, not just before it. Mm -hmm. And in, in, that, those, in that new language element, there would be no way to tell in the language itself what its relation was to the old elements. And this is, uh, for example, this double arrow, this double arrow here, or the, the equivalent textual form. How does it relate to the the single arrow you had before, the, the single sequencing that you had in your textual language? You know what? Uh, what what's that relation? And that's why you get into these testing cycles where you introduce new things in the language. You have to test. You introduce new things into your. Uh, into your program. You have to continually test them, and, because it's only really the tests that tell you, or the documentation, that really tells you what happens, what's the effect of this language at runtime. And the trouble with, of course, that approach is that, well, then we don't have a computer-sensible way that um, we can really compare these new language elements with the old ones. Whereas, if you remember from the earlier slide, the notion of being just after is defined in terms of the, the previous notion of being sometime after. There's an axiom that relates those two. So each time you add these new concepts, if you need them, uh, you can define them in terms of the old ones. 
going to slide 35. So then down in fast food service, effectively what's happening is we're defining an additional constraint over the one that we had defined for food service, which is that uh, you prepare before you order, sometime before you order. And this, so what this shows is that you, you can incrementally build up, you can imagine much larger process hierarchy, for example, that you find in the MIT process handbook. And at each step, at each uh, layer of the hierarchy, uh, you're adding more and more constraints. It allows you to incrementally define uh, a, 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 an entire class hierarchy uh, of processes. So let's see, let's go, uh, slide 36 just shows graphically what we were talking about before, that uh, some of the parts of the occurrence tree will, will satisfy, say, food service or fast food service. Other parts won't satisfy anything. This one doesn't satisfy the constraints of food service, for example, um, because it's, let's see, you are serving before you're ordering. Let's go on to slide, uh, hmm, slide 37 is a duplicate, sorry. Uh, so that's the description of the example um, of, of uh, 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 36 concludes the example of behavior classification. Um, and, and demonstrates the, increment, the incremental nature of being able to use PSL constraints. So let's go to slide 38. Um, this was just a little comment uh, on, for me, the difference between abstraction and ambiguity, uh, because some people complain, well, PSLs well, is more verbose, harder to write, uh, and these other programming languages and process models, they're easier to read. Uh, and sometimes you hear it said that those process models are more abstract that somehow PSL is like a Turing machine, you know, kind of thing. It's too, it's, it's too much information, as it were, and you want to have less. Um, so I thought about that, and, and I realized, well, actually, ambiguity and abstraction both are ways of producing a language that has, that's uh, a producing a way of presenting, of producing less information. They both emit information. But, um, the, the difference between them is that ambiguity does it intentionally and tells you uh, that what it's, what it's essentially, it, it lets you identify what it's not telling you. Whereas ambiguity, is not, it, it meant you left something out unintentionally. Or you require that someone go learn something else as another piece of documentation somewhere. Or you were, uh, in the case of standards development, it's often because you were not on the telecom that day. You don't know what that new model element is they put in. So what I, the way I define a proper abstraction as opposed to an ambiguity is that it says what the modeler actually meant and didn't mean. And uh, PSL enables this um, by giving you the occurrence tree on which you can exactly say as much or as, as little as you want, but you know what, you know the meaning of uh, the runtime effect of, uh, you actually know it what the modeler intended to be the runtime effect. Uh, this is just a little slide on PSL myths. Um, 
as I said, some people think, well, it's, it's too precise. There's really too much said. But as we saw in the in the behavior classification, actually, let you say very little. You can uh, make very abstract constraints on processes. Uh, the one I give in the email, I responded to Nicholas, for example, in a hospital, you can say, well, patients, whatever processes go on in this hospital, just make sure that the patient's temperature is read uh, when they come in. Uh, it doesn't need to be immediately after they come in. Maybe that's not the requirement, um, as might be done with an alert or something like that. But just that when they do come into the office, their temperature is taken and recorded. And so you're actually able, in, some, in a lot of cases, to make uh, simpler. It actually simplifies your process specifications because it lets you say as little as you want. And um, it also lets you make the useful distinctions that otherwise might really hang you up when you find out, well, the actual process isn't behaving as you want because, for example, you didn't specify whether the ordering was strong or weak, this notion of being immediately after or sometime after or whether you're having weak or strong concurrency, whether you're, allow, whether you're requiring interleaving, or can they actually be concurrent. Um, and as I mentioned, it lets you uh, carve out viewpoints on activities. So you can say that a specific occurrence meets many sorts of constraints, and therefore is essentially a, a subactivity occurrence of many activity occurrences. And these distinctions give you, give you power. Uh, so it's not that PSL is just more precise, but that the distinctions let you uh, give you much more power in saying what you want. Does the same uh, property hold uh, when we are trying to abstract over the uh, inputs and outputs of the processes, um, where in, in some viewpoint, for example, um, we might actually combine uh, parts of uh, the inputs of, of, of different processes into one thing. I'm not sure exactly how to, um, to explain this, yeah. uh, but... Um, well, that's, um, that's actually the, one of the topics of... Uh, I don't know if you, the mail got through yet, but I, I give a pointer to uh, an input-output extension to PSL that we wrote that does use that capability. Um, because, for example, uh, you think of a machine, say, at a factory, as, say, that it's going to lay the part. You know, it has an input of that part, and then it outputs the lathed part. Well, there's all sorts of other things going on. Uh, there's oil coming in and out of the machine. There's power coming in and out of the machine. The machine's emitting vibrations. Um, so there's that one, uh, that one occurrence or a series of occurrences that happens during the lathing uh, is actually uh, has, you can take multiple viewpoints as to where the entities that are participating in it are coming from. Um, and this is distinguished from common process modeling where you define a procedure and, and it has certain inputs and it has certain outputs and you really can't take views on those. So that the, the capability of an occurrence in, uh, in PSL to satisfy multiple complex occurrence constraints lets you basically take views that include the participants, that includes views on the participants, um, like inputs and outputs. And I guess uh, another PSL myth sort of on the other end is you say that, well, PSL, can you can say anything. Well, you actually can, I guess, say anything, 
but some things get pretty complicated. Uh, so that's sort of on the other end of the mythology spectrum. Uh, so for more information, um, there, are, there are links on the wiki page. And uh, this, this presentation was mostly uh, the detail on it is in the paper called The Semantic Domain for Flow Models. And there's all that. Go ahead. Uh, Bob Smith. Very exciting uh, kind of uh, insights. Uh, I was looking at the PSL MIPS, page 39. Do you have some examples or case studies where you've been especially successful and making important distinctions. For example, in our HL7 <coughs> discussions or debates. Um, there have been a number of applications of PSL, and uh, we could, I could see if I can get the slides up that, ha that have the pointers to those. Um, for example, there was one at IBM in a, in a precursor to PSL that was used to there was a set of business processes that had already been actually designed and deployed, and they um, represented it in PSL, and then they essentially uh, ran some queries to ask it, because uh, they were expected certain properties of these processes to hold, and they ran queries on it, and it turns out it, it didn't hold and was able to identify cases in which these properties weren't going to hold. And so they essentially identified 10 or so bugs in, in the business process some of which were actually already implemented. And there have been a number of other applications since then uh, that it's been used for. When you say identify bugs, and, and you mentioned before that um, some people use uh, theory improvers and, and other kinds of tools, mm -hmm. I, I haven't seen much in terms of what kind of uh, reasoning tool support there is available that could digest uh, in a you know, sufficiently uh, um, precise way to then perform these kinds of uh, inferences and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and reasoning tasks. Could you describe uh, what uh, is available? Uh, the ones I'm aware of, I guess the most well-known one is Vampire because it keeps winning these um, math-proving awards. Uh, I believe it is KIF-enabled. And um, there are also older ones, uh, Otter and Snark. And um, the tools from the Kestrel Institute are uh, have let you plug in like Otter and Snark. Um, Which tools from Kestrel are you, you know, specifically talking about? Uh, they have one from called Specware. Mm -hmm which is KIF-enabled. And I, uh, my understanding is it uh, provides an interface for first-order provers. And uh, there are, uh, my, I, my understanding is that there's NARC and Otter plugins. Uh, Peter Yim here. Uh, since you're working on uh, object-constraint language, with the UML2, uh, uh, how, how do you see that sort of similar or different from the PSL uh, 
initiative and, and are they supposed to merge somewhere? Well, UML2 falls into the what I call the, uh, the classical process modeling style. Uh, you sort of draw a template of what you want to happen at runtime. You don't refer to the actual uh, executions. So it, it has all the properties we were talking about of being, well, seeming simpler and yet hiding a lot of ambiguity. Uh, the, the way that's addressed in UML is to uh, all the behavior models in UML actually are defined with virtual machines. Um, so that that is informally specified virtual machines. And the one for activity models is loosely PetriNet based. So you can follow the tokens around the graph. And actually, I've received bug reports that say, OK, well, you know, this token is not going to move where I want it in this case, and that sort of thing, which indicates to me that the virtual machine is specified well enough that I can actually get bug reports on it. Um, and that's good as a communication device. At least people can you know, predict what the machine's going to do. Uh, but of course, it's not. I think there's actually been some formalization work on it. Uh, but you know, it's not a way, even, even PetriNet's really not a way that you can, uh, you can't use a regular first order prover on it. And uh, there is some work coming up uh, on what's called executable UML, which will define a core part, probably, of the activity model that uh, we're hoping would provide this, reason, uh, would be reasoning enabled. And then all the diagrams in the behavior diagrams in UML would have mappings to this executable core, executable and inferenceable core. And uh, then we could bring together these three under uh, a single semantic, uh, give semantics to all three of these. And we'll see how, you know, PSL, uh, whether PSL is, PSL is certainly a candidate for doing that. There are, there are of course, other approaches. So. Um, uh, PSL would certainly be an input to that. Do you see PSL being I mean, adopted? I mean, which are the other candidates? Oh, well, uh, there have been other. Um, actually, uh, let's see if I can remember them. There, the other approaches tend to be of the pre and post condition style. They still have, they do have a semantic domain in the sense that they refer to occurrences, actual executions. Uh, and they are they're tied together sequentially. The the ones that the ones that have been done so far that I'm aware of, for example, don't have branching. The ones at OMG, uh, they they're what they the equivalent of their occurrence tree didn't branch. So that meant you couldn't you could only define determinism by defining a loose constraint. You couldn't actually write a constraint that says I'm requiring indeterminism here. So. Um, the other approaches are, I think, still occurrence-based. There may be differences in uh, their capabilities. Uh, uh, we actually, I mean, uh, at least myself, have posed a few questions on the wiki page. OK. Maybe you could field those. Um, I'll start from the first. Should I uh, go to it on the server here? I, I, I can navigate over there. Oh, yeah. 
Okay. Okay, the first question is, uh, in, I mean, from various sources, we've seen that various people like Mike Reninger, yourself, uh, Chris Mansell, Steve Ray were, I mean, at different points involved with PSL. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little bit of history of PSL when it started? And, and so oh, okay. Uh, well, uh, it's rooted in um, that, that well-known paper by McCarthy and Hayes on uh, situation calculus. Um, it, it described basically this notion of focusing on the actual executions. But it was not actually axiomatized until, uh, let's see, what is his name? Uh, Ray Ryder, who is Michael Grenzer's advisor, actually ax did the first axioms. And um, I think it was him and Chris Menzel maybe who did the first Axiom set. And that, uh, I think part of it, uh, part of the precursor was at MIT, there was a, a project called PIF. I forget what that means exactly. It may have been related to the MIT Process Handbook, uh, but PIF fed directly into PSL also. And um, the uh, the original work at NIST started with sort of a review of all process languages just to see what capabilities they had, and it was settled to to do an occurrence-based uh, execution-based language on which you could write first-order constraints, and and from there um, the original axiomizations that uh, Menzel and Ryder did were expanded. Um, and the ontology was used on various and various, mostly as an inter, as a way of specifying interchange. If you want to interchange, say, a scheduler uh, with a planner or something like that, uh, to say what kinds of processes can this scheduler handle or this planner handle, and to characterize those. Um, and because of those applications, uh, PSL grew quite significantly. There's a there's a large set of, um, there's basically a large set of classifications of pieces of the occurrence tree is what you can see them as. That's what all the PSL extensions are. They don't add any new relations to the basic set. Uh, they just give other patterns, uh, many kinds of useful patterns in the occurrence tree uh, for various applications. And uh, it, 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 is this it is still related to some of Steve's work in PDES? In, P, in PDES? Yeah. Is, is it, I mean, the ISO standards? Oh, uh, it is being standardized at ISO, uh, PSL is. Yes, but in relation to some of the uh, standards uh, that, that uh, Steve had worked on, is that true? Um, I guess I'm not, so I've only been here a couple of years, so actually I don't know what Steve worked on there. Um, there the, the history at ISO, mm, it, 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 I think there were maybe some other attempts that, that didn't work in terms of standardization. 
but then I guess they went back to the drawing board, as I understand it, and they uh, grounded uh, grounded it in KIF, and KIF is also being standardized uh, at ISO. So Michael's tracking all that. Can you tell us something about your your work at HL7? I, I know Bob had asked just now, but maybe more specifically, since you know we're putting in uh, uh, our recommendation that mm -hmm. uh, the NHIN initiative uh, adopt an ontological engineering approach, mm -hmm. what kind of uh, advice can you give us, or in your opinion, what are the few most crucial things that need to happen? before such an approach can be in place? Well, I've only been tracking HL7 a bit, um, mostly looking at their reference information model. Um, they have uh, a different approach to the notions of class, role, and instance than others do. Uh, and that's probably the main hurdle in, say, aligning it with, say, UML or OWL. Uh, they, their layers of model between class, role, and instance actually aren't different. They just have this uh, little property called the, what they call the mood. And so an entity can be a class, it could be a role, it could be an instance, depending on its, quote, mood. And um, their, their sort of upper ontology, uh, it, it's reasonable. Uh, I don't know how it aligns or, or doesn't with other upper ontologies. Um, but it, it, I find it somewhat compelling. It's got a very, only very few elements in it, um, which of course causes many, many subclasses when they when they expand it all. Uh, so I would say that in approaching that, you just have to take into account that they do have their own upper ontology and they address these issues of the relational class and instance differently than, than UML and OWL. I, I don't know if you have had a chance to see a posting from Brand Neiman this morning. Brand was with us, but he had to uh, leave early. But but he had suggested that, that we actually embark on a project. And I definitely welcome you to participate with us uh, in, in at least putting together an example of a mapping uh, that to some some of their existing uh, vocabulary, we will be talking about it pro most probably next week. Uh, let's see, brand name. Uh, mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry. Um, what was your question? No, there wasn't a question, but uh, I was making a statement that uh, further to our, our uh, the NHIN response, Brent Neiman, uh, who's uh, in the federal health architecture uh, and on-chit uh, leadership, I mean, had suggested that maybe we could work on uh, a, pro a sample project to demonstrate some mapping of existing vocabulary into into a KIF-based ontology. Hmm. Uh, so mm -hmm. I would invite you to to join us. 
well, thank you. Um, be, be setting setting something up for for a discussion next week. Okay. My, um, it's hard for me to get on new projects at this point, but but thank you. I have a, I did the question about the PSL and OWL at the bottom of the uh, wiki page. Uh huh. And and by the way, I still haven't received your mail for some reason. Oh. It's very strange. Yeah, I I, thought I replied. Let's see where I replied to. Uh, I replied again to um, Nicholas at jpl .nasa .gov. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, mail doesn't actually necessarily go out of here very quickly. I also sent it to the Ontolog forum. Yeah, that that would be great actually. I mean, oh, okay. To the Ontolog forum, then then more of us can can benefit from. Okay, that. I see it on your on the forum. Yes. Okay. You want to read your question, maybe, uh, Nicholas? Yeah, so the question is, uh, you mentioned that the PSL axioms are in, in KEF, which is more expressive than OWL. Mm -hmm. But in practice, um, a user of PSL would probably not um, um, have, uh, you know, carry around the, uh, the PSL KEF axioms, but instead use the PSL concepts and relations you've described as, as a kind of a primitive um, uh, to build the specification for a given process like painting, drawing, like you described. Mm -hmm. So um, in, in, that, in that context where the PSL uh, concepts and relations would, would be just used as primitives, um, what, would you have a comment about using those um, primitive specification constructs and relations um, in, in OWL, for example, mm -hmm. um, and, and building then um, a description of the process, like painting, drawing, like you described, mm -hmm. and then later export um, from the ontology um, the, the KIF statements along with um, the KIF axioms of uh, PSL itself, so that the reasoning tool like those you mentioned could, uh, could crank on it. Well, the, um, you could uh, try to translate some of the PSL axioms into OWL, um, but OWL is fairly limited. And um, for example, you, I don't believe you can say that a relation is irreflexive, which you need, um, you know, for typical ordering constraints. Uh, something can't be before itself, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and also, the constraints that the user wants to say about the process may not be of the kind that uh, uh, that you can express in OWL either. So, um, so you're saying that the logical formulas that the, that a user might want to describe about his own particular process is something that we would not necessarily be able to to write in in OWL, in OWL itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you. So, uh, I mean, I haven't looked in detail about which axioms can be represented and which not, but um, uh, you know, uh, we're not planning on actually doing that, but we'd be very interested if someone did compare it. But we think since, it, it, for example, if it can't handle irreflexivity, it's really, really hard to, to go after uh, even the temporal relations. So, so maybe look at it another way around. What would you see for 
you know, say an average user who may not have a you know a very strong background in in formal logic or, or, or mathematics or whatever, mm -hmm. to be able to um, to you know, to graduate, if you will, from using PowerPoint as a process specification language mm -hmm. to say PSL as something more rigorous. What, what um, well, of course, if you're starting with PowerPoint, it, it's probably best to step through uh, something like UML because. Okay, but it's okay. Maybe if you're going from UML, which has all of these ambiguities you mentioned, and mm -hmm. then into switching into something more, more precise and rigorous like this. Mm -hmm. How could that be done in practice? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, you know, we aren't sure exactly how that would proceed. Um, it it may be that. Uh, PSL would really only be specified by folks who are uh, uh, trained in logic for specific languages. So you might say the semantics of UML2 or a programming language might be expressed that way. And then when the user writes in that language, they, uh, rather than say running tests to see if it does what they want, they could start writing rules um, and there can be, of course, English front ends for such rules uh, about properties they expect the process to uh, exhibit. And then the provers can be used uh, on the KIF translations of those and the, and the PSL translation of their process models to determine if that's actually the case. And if it's not the case, uh, I guess the important thing is to find a way that you can produce meaningful error messages and counterexamples that show where the process, that show examples of why the process doesn't satisfy the characteristic that, that they're expecting. I'm just talking, just thinking off the top of my head about how you would use it. Mm -hmm. It would be a significant amount of tooling for someone who's uh, not going to be reading the KIF axioms. Um, in general, actually, first-order logic is a little more scary than it actually is, since there's only six connectors. Um, and once you learn a few tricks about uh, how to use those connectors, um, it's not so bad. Right. Okay, maybe look at it from another way. Uh, you mentioned that um, uh, tools like, for example, Specware have some module that interface with KIF and, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Can you speak about um, uh, some experience you might have or some uh, comments you might try to make about the the use of something like PSL, uh, PSL a, based on KIF with other specification languages that are more uh, kind of um, algebraic or, uh, or 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 allow the user to to look at um, at a domain in a in a more structured way or more kind of like a, a schema type way that some people find more uh, e easier to relate to as opposed to logic. Mm -hmm. See, I don't know if I, uh, okay, so if I have a beat on the languages you're referring to. Uh, but in Specware itself is a, um, you know, has a fairly expressive way of, uh, uh, for someone to define a, 
a domain or a model domain as a specification mm -hmm. uh, can recognize algebraic specification. So in the case of dry paint and whatnot, mm -hmm. you might have some um, some kind of like schema, like um, description of what painting means in terms mm -hmm. of how many paints and brushes and, oh. and labors and you know, whatnot. And and so somebody could um, model an application domain from a specification perspective, mm -hmm. going down to the details of what needs to be specified for, say, painting and things like this, mm -hmm. or from a, a logical or formal approach, like you did in PSL, where it describes the axioms about what, how things can happen and, and, and how they cannot happen. Mm -hmm. um, but there seems to be two really different ways of in the end, modeling the same thing, like painting. Mm -hmm. um, could you speak about what uh, your experience has been with projects that have to used these two approaches or maybe combine them? Well, I guess I'm not familiar with that particular specware approach, but, but as I say, we basically have languages where you're not referring to execution directly and you have languages where you are and uh, the, if it's if especially we're talking about a subject matter expert who's really not going to um, learn logic then the the mapping has to happen essentially behind their back um, and uh, yeah, the, the tooling has to be quite significant to bridge the gap so that if they say something that uh, if they say something that uh, violates other requirements they've written down, for example, that, that the tool can tell them. Um, the story I described before is, is, I don't know if any tool actually does that, but to compare, for example, business rules, which are written in business rule and tools uh, for marketing people versus uh, process models written, say, in other business process modeling languages, you might want to compare them. And really, uh, the only way to tell if the process conforms to that rule is to translate them to, to something that's occurrence-based. And then you can actually f see if there's part of the occurrence tree that uh, uh, that the rules are disallowing, that the process is allowing. Um, it sort of puts them on the same footing. I see. All of that, I think, would, would have to happen. I mean, for the subject matter expert, there's really no other, no other way. But, but PSL gives you that uh, underlying infrastructure in which uh, you can des describe any sort of constraint on your, the processes, say, in your business, and also lets you compare languages. So you can say that the semantics of the language is this, uh, these, the following, uh, that the each element of the language or the combination of these elements places these constraints on the occurrence tree. And if every process modeling tool did that, you'd actually have a big leg up on interoperability um, if you could manage to make the reverse translation uh, from PSL to those modeling languages. Conrad, you mentioned something about business rule languages. A couple of instances of what you mean by that. I know OMG is doing some work there. Oh, yeah, they are. Um, but there's lots of, I mean, I'm not supposed to mention specific vendors, but 
there, there are a number of companies uh, out there that provide uh, uh, business rule facilities, and the OMG is coming to standardization of a way to express these rules in a structured kind of English mm -hmm. uh, and translate to a, a logical formalism. So, uh, but that logical formalism is not going to be occurrence-based or occurrence-accommodating, occurrence as far as you know? Um, I actually, I'm actually not aware of, I don't understand what their, I, I don't know about what their logical formalism is. I know okay. that they haven't, they haven't linked it in, in a way to any of the process models so that they could, as I say, compare the, compare what, what things happen in the world that the rules allow versus what the processes allow. Okay. Bill? And to some extent, Paul Harmon's business process trends.com mm -hmm. has a reasonable amount of discussion of business rules in terms of process models and standards. Okay. Was that again now, Paul? Oh, I will email you. Okay. 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 Uh, well, you can maybe send to them. Okay. Yeah, I, I, it's clearly a, a big issue, and. Um, there, the, the approach of industry, of course, will be somewhat piecemeal. They'll look for particular interaction points between the rules and the processes. Well, with Sarbanes-Oxley, I'm not exactly sure I would call that piecemeal. Somebody's got to solve this problem pretty quickly. So. But the PSL itself is a standard right now, right? Yeah, it's a, um, I forget which stage it's at. It's, it's an ISO project. So what, what impact is this going to have? Or, or, or would you expect it to have? Well, if we can, um, most hopeful about the uh, the executable UML work because if it could be that there is um, a PSL-like way of describing uh, what's happening at runtime and the mappings of not only UML, the existing UML behavior models, but other behavior models and rule languages could be mapped to that, um, or it could be mapped straight to PSL. I mean, how you do this politically is sort of, or through, through what standards organization is always tricky, but um, uh, if industry does want a general solution, which sometimes they don't, um, then they will have to find a, a common way to express the implications of, of rules and processes. And uh, I don't know if ISO, I don't know if any, I, I don't know what goes on at ISO as well as Michael does. There may be things uh, around this that they're doing, but at OMG it would, it would be done around the executable UML specification. Uh, the, the RFP is coming up for that at the end of March. Oh, one other question. I mean, since you guys are working on, on KIF uh, predominantly, is there a move towards SCL from where, where you are working? Um, actually, Michael's tracking that more about, uh, I don't know if there's going to be a change in the syntax or uh, how that will work exactly. SCL or CL has a apparently an abstract syntax above these various note, concrete notations that can be used for logic. Um, so, I, mean, do you I hope they support the classic KIF notation just because I got used to it. 
So it's it's plausible that maybe in a couple of years everybody doing FOL would be doing it in CL. Um, it's uh, it's the only standard that I'm aware of. The OMG is actually building meta models for CL and for OWL. Uh, I don't know whether that's so important for CL since it's already defining a notation independent model, but it'll bring it'll it'll bring CL and OWL and uh, other models under under the uh, under what's called the meta object facility that OMG uses for describing its languages, and they're working on mappings between UML and OWL and OWL and, and KIF or uh, CL. Bill, are, are you working anywhere around that area? Um, no, but I wish I was. I've got some older work on business rules and constraints and internal controls that I'm trying to find a notation for. But, but PSL looks like a great candidate. Um, I must admit this, uh, this is an eye-opening session for me. So I actually read the papers ahead of time. No, that's good. It's very unusual. <laughs> So I, I, you know, I, when you talk to somebody, said uh, the, the bar was set low, and you start talking about doing some of these models in PowerPoint. But in accounting, of course, there, uh, there are old program flowcharts and data flow diagrams, and um, with with little or no uh, formal uh, descriptions, and certainly nothing at the occurrence level. That's sort of a new new idea, I must admit. Um, Amen. So. You, you, um, in the context of um, of CL, KIF, uh, and, and, and first order logic, um, or OWL, you had mentioned that uh, you know KIF is more expressive than OWL, but where does it stand with respect to CL? Um, I think CL is adding a little bit over what is a traditional KIF, um, but I'm, I'm not sure uh, what exactly. Um, of course, PSL doesn't use those capabilities. It's it's based on a traditional KIF. So, so b beyond the you know aspects of syntax, then then is it fair to say that you you, you wouldn't expect much uh, technical issues about say uh, describing PSL in CL? No, no, there, I wouldn't expect there'd be any problems. Oh, Nicholas. Oh, were were you with us? Uh, when Chris Mansell was making a presentation at Ontolock on SCL. No, I wasn't. Uh, you, you should go back, I mean, go to the wiki, search for Mansell, and, and, and the, the, the session was recorded, so you can actually go back through his slides and the recorded session. I think it was a, a very useful session. Great. Thanks, Peter. Okay. Yeah. We had a wonderful session this morning. Uh, any further questions? Great job. Uh, if well, not, thanks. then on behalf of the Ontolog community, I would like to thank uh, Conrad for being so generous to share with us uh, his work and his insights. Thank you very, very much. We well, thank look you, Peter. To working with. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.